0: Greetings. I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 266, and today's guest is Aaron Patzer, founder and CEO of Vital and Mint.com. I'm sure most of our listeners remember or even still use mint.com i have vivid memories of the company as it basically kicked off a fintech revolution and it was such a major success story in the span of two years it launched at a TechCrunch event and was acquired by intuit for 170 million this was back in 2009 about a year after sequoia capital published its famous rip good times presentation so lofty valuations And unicorns were not a common thing back then and this exit was a home run. I still remember the blog post about the exit from Josh Koppelman of First Round Capital who was an early investor in the company and mentioned how Aaron was a member of the First Round Capital blank check club, which they did follow through on that promise as an investor in his other companies. Looking back, there were three core reasons why Mint.com really stood out for me. Number one, it was a design-first type of product which was not common especially in financial services apps. Two, it was free for consumers to use, so they had to figure out an alternative way to generate revenue. And third, it automatically pulled in your financial data and categorized transactions, which is something that we just take for granted now. Well since Mint.com, Aaron has gone on to build other companies, and his latest startup is called Vital. The company is building software for care teams and patients with a focus on the emergency room experience. Vital uses AI and machine learning to transform the care experience, increase patient and staff satisfaction, and increase revenue for their clients. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like having a fail-fast mentality may not be the best way to build a company if you are solving a really complex problem, Aaron's full background story, including examples as an entrepreneur and a builder from a very early age. He even had a business called getawebsite.com, and yes, he owned that domain, which he later sold the full life cycle story of mint.com with lots of great stories and lessons learned along the way, how vital is disrupting the healthcare industry and the emergency room experience for consumers, the difference between building a consumer product versus an enterprise solution, advice on building the initial foundation team for a startup, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you may wanna add a VentureFizz subscription. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps to keep your company top of mind for our targeted audience of professionals in the tech industry. A VentureFizz subscription includes an employment branding page, unlimited postings to our job board, access to our exclusive content series, and more. Send an email to info at for all the specifics. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Aaron. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you because you're a serial entrepreneur that has had great, great success. Um, you know, I certainly remember Mint very fondly, was a user, and you're up to some exciting things now with Vital, so I'm excited to talk to you about how you're disrupting the whole healthcare industry, uh, but talking to you, I wanted to break down some advice that i think entrepreneurs would definitely uh, take a lot from and when i was learning more about how you started building mint.com uh from what i gathered you spent three or four months really researching the idea before writing a line of code yet there's lots of entrepreneurs or venture capitalists that are giving advice out there saying you need to get your product out there and i think even like um Reed Hoffman says, "If you're not embarrassed by your MVP, then you're not doing it right." So, you know, they'll just get it out there as soon as possible. So, there's trade-offs of both. So, I thought it'd be good to get your perspective on the two different types of scenarios.
1: Yeah, what a wild ride Mint was. Um, you know, it was eventually acquired for 170 million dollars, and we were the first ones to break the streak after the Great Recession. Uh, the first one to be acquired for over 100 billion dollars for a year uh, during that time period. Um, I think it was one of the ones that companies that gave rise to a fintech revolution. Um, so I'm really proud of Mint. it's still in existence. 15 years later, people are still using it. And I think the reason why is the first point of advice that I give to any entrepreneurs is number one, solve a real problem. And to understand that you've got a real problem, you have to have a positive vision for what uh, an industry or a company could and should be. So there are a lot of people who are like, it's all about MVPs and you'll just AB test your way to success and just throw a lot of spaghetti on the wall and and see what sticks. Um, And I actually don't believe that. I don't believe that's the way to have a category leading company. Um, I think that is the way to, when you have defined your vision um, and you think it's approximately correct to refine it, but if you literally don't know what direction you're going, um, I think it's a bad idea. Pick a direction, research it heavily, um, understand your market. So I went around and I, I literally, for Mint, I, I talked to, I'm from Evansville, Indiana, you know, sort of small town Midwest. I talked to my neighbors who are not especially technically sophisticated, not Silicon Valley types, not the people who are probably even listening to this podcast, normal people, um, not biased friends. And I just asked them about how do they budget? How many credit cards do they have? How many loans do they have? How do they manage all of that? um, What tools do they use or not use? And really understood the problem before I sat down to figure out how am I going to solve it? If you understand the problem completely enough, um, that is literally half of what's required to solve it.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, you go through the archives of the VentureFist podcast and this holds true. I mean, some of the more successful entrepreneurs I've had on the podcast, they spent you know, six months interviewing CIOs of whatever enterprise problem they were trying to solve, right? It was just, it's not just like, let's build it and hopefully they'll use it and we'll just iterate. And, you know, uh, it's just, if the more, it seems like the more time you spend upfront understanding the problem, the pain point that someone's willing to invest their time or spend money on, uh, the the more legs you'll hopefully get out of it. So, well, let's rewind the clock. You have a little bit of a hint as far as where you're from. So let's talk about, you know, you as a child and you what know, what were you like? Uh, oh well, um,
1: my uh, my partner, she was talking to my mom, met my mom, you know, for the first time a, a year or two ago, and my mother says, as a child, that I was very very focused, but um, I would always take cuddle breaks. So. Um, I'm a, I'm a very affectionate person as a partner and as a friend. Hopefully, friendly if you meet me in person, but hyper focused. Um, other moms would say that I didn't play right. I would organize all of my Legos by uh, by color and size. I would organize all of my cars, you know, in in perfect uh, alignment in in lines, and everything was at right angles. To me, it was just like the efficient way to to build. Um, and I built a lot, uh, when I was a kid, um, I actually have all these photos from age six or seven where I would, uh, design my own, um, Lego and construct sort of, uh, robots, submarines, spaceships, not from the plans like you you would do if you were following, um, but like my own, out of my own head. And I used to make my picture, my parents take pictures of them and I was going to try to sell them, sell my designs back to the company. That didn't really happen. I was six and I didn't know how to exactly uh, talk to companies or write in. My parents could have helped me more in retrospect. They were They were, they were decent designs, but I've always had a keen interest in building. I got a computer, um, when I was six years old. So this was 1987 when we got our first computer, Tandy 2000. Yeah, it was a Tandy 2000. It was 12 megahertz. Um, it had a 10 megabyte hard drive, which we upgraded to a 30 megabyte hard drive, you know, that, that stores about five photos now that you take on your iPhone Um, it had 256 uh, uh, you know colors in terms of graphics EGA this was before VGA, before you know HD you know way way back when it was something like 200 by 300 pixels um, if you can believe that I mean I spent a lot of time um, on the computer um, doing like educational software and this was everything was DOS based and so you had to kind of quasi program if you grew up on computers back then, and you were always having to like compress and uncompress stuff and move things around. Um, And so I got to know computers quite well at an early age. Uh, Pre-internet, we would use these things called bulletin board systems, BBSs. Um, And so I've had email since like the late eighties when I was eight or nine years old. Um, I ran a BBS in 1990 when I was uh, like 10. Um, you know, required a second phone line, you were literally dialing in. Email was not instantaneous, you would literally send an email, put it on a server, and then it would synchronize with other computers like two to four times a day. Email actually took hours to get to the recipient um, back then, which was crazy. But it instilled in me, um, you know, uh, the power of what networking and interconnectivity could do. I literally remember when the World Wide Web came out because I was already using. Usenets and Archie and Veronica and, and the things that are from like 92, 93 before um, Mosaic and, uh, and Netscape came out. Um, and being from a small town, the only jobs that I really had available to me were like, you know, manual labor and, and things like that. Um, so I started in 96, get a I later sold that domain for a, a good price. <laughs> I was um, going to ask
0: you that, because that's an amazing SEO domain for website building. <laughs> it's
1: yes. phenomenal. In fact, um, I did SEO as part of what I did. So I built, built websites for people. And um, I had a foreign exchange student, a Dutch guy who was a programmer. I picked him because he was a programmer. He programmed in C++ games and things. But his big advantage was he spoke six languages. So um, I would build the websites, and then he would translate it into Dutch, German, French, English. And I can't remember, you know, what the, what the other one was, Um, but it was pretty, uh, pretty amazing. It was a great way to make money when I was 16, 17. Um, I also did SEO terms. This was pre-Google. So this was Excite and Infoseek and um, those search engines, you know, the kind of thing where you could do like hidden pink text on a purple background that no one would see. And uh, I remember once a client, I charged something like. I don't know, $100 for um, five keywords. And somebody wanted uh, electronic greeting cards and e-greeting and e-greeting cards. So I think it was a company called Blue Mountain. And I did it and I got them like a number one or number two ranking. And my ISP called me like two days into the month and they said, you're like out of bandwidth. This is when they metered everything. Um, we've had 400,000 hits or page views on these landing pages that you have redirecting to this, this other company. And here I was, you know, uh, from the Midwest thinking, God, I, I made $100 for two hours of work, you know, five times what my friends were making. I had no idea how to price things. I sent these people 400,000 click throughs, you know, for a 100 bucks. Like I had no idea how to price. I mean, it was just just ridiculous um, the amount of value that I created without really billing for it. But I, I managed to save up a bunch of money, um, went to Duke. I got uh, triple majored in electrical engineering, computer engineering, and computer science. And I actually managed to take some classes in financial and managerial accounting, which was really helpful for um, Mint as well. I was doing a PhD at Princeton in electrical engineering, um, optics, photonics, and networking. Um, Worked with the former chief scientist of uh, AT&T as my personal mentor, Sandy Frazier, who's amazing. He's got a PhD from Cambridge in computer science from 1960. Literally, he started his PhD in math, and they didn't invent computer science as a discipline until he was halfway through, and he was one of the first people who did it. He was one of the first Unix programmers, amazing resource to have as as a mentor. Um, And from what I learned from Sandy um, Alexander Frazier is uh, academics wasn't particularly practical. he would tell me things like, I remember one time he was like, so what do you know about network reliability? I I don't know. I quoted him some of the equations and the things that we were learning. And he said, ah, it's all bullshit. Network reliability depends on, um, the weather. It depends on how old your telephone poles are and how often they fall over in storms and how many trucks you have going out to repair them. And I was like, wow, I need to drop out of this. Um, I talked to uh, a guy named Ed Zhao. He used to be a congressman in Silicon Valley. He created some of the uh, laws to help venture capital become an asset class before uh, it wasn't possible because of um, certain rules around uh, uh, who could own stock and who couldn't. Um, He was my um, professor for high-tech entrepreneurship. And one of the uh, assignments was to talk to as many entrepreneurs as you could. Um, you only had to talk to one interview. One, I discovered that as a Princeton student, um, I could just say, "Hey, I love your startup. Can you tell me what's great about it?" And just like you know, you with a podcast, you can talk to all sorts of uh, interesting people. Everybody was willing to talk to me, so I ended up talking to seven or ten people. You know, literally ten x what I was supposed to. But it was just really easy and non-threatening. Maybe they wanted to hire me. Who knows? Um, and. Even the ones who had PhDs, it just wasn't necessary. So I, uh, as soon as I realized this, I immediately just dropped out of my my PhD um, and started uh, working for a startup in Austin, Texas um, called Nacentric. They did um, hard they did software to design microchips. So I actually have a bunch of patents in how to design microchips and test circuitry. Um, and this was before or just when computers had a Billion transistors, um, you know, about twenty years ago. So uh, that was amazing. What was great about it is I was the only one without a PhD at that whole company. It was probably eleven or twelve of us, and I wrote about a third of the code for the company um, at the time. So. More than pulling my weight. And they let me come up with like the interview process and figure out who, you know, get, you know, hired or part of it. Um, I asked them if I could start the San Jose division. So I moved out to Silicon Valley when I was like all of 23, because I went to university a little early. Um, and then, you know, I just realized um, this idea for Mint. Um, originally I called it money intelligence and then Pornima, who's engineer number two was like, money intelligence is a really long name. Why don't you just call it mint? And I was like, Oh my God, that makes sense. And mint is a place where money is manufactured. Mint is mint condition. Mint is fresh. Mint stands for money intelligence. Like it just, it was just a click. And I was like, this is the perfect brand name. And so I, uh, I started interviewing people and making plans um, I actually pitched uh, uh, Rulof Bata at um, Sequoia Capital uh, before he was head of Sequoia. And he had just, um, l- you know, was ex-PayPal. This was 2006. He actually put me in touch with um, Chad Hurley over at YouTube and was like, hey, uh, you know, you just have a business idea. You don't have any code. You're just like this guy um, who thinks that he has a great idea. Why don't you go talk to YouTube? They're looking for you know, a head of front-end engineering. Oh wow! And I interviewed there and I was offered a, a, you know, a job there probably would have made, you know, good money. I made more with mint, but I actually turned that down and said, hey, you know, I'm going to do this on my own.
0: And How many so I employees this... was YouTube then?
1: Well, that was well before they were, they were already pretty successful, but it was well before the Google acquisition. So I would say there were probably 40 people, 50 people, Okay, yep. you know, early days. I mean, I have, I have lot, lots of stories. I used to be very good friends with Randy Zuckerberg, who is Mark's older sister. So I, yeah, I remember playing Guitar Hero with Mark when Facebook was all of 100, 150 employees you know, in downtown oh, wow. Palo Alto. Okay. But um, uh, turned down the YouTube offer um, and then I just decided I could, I could live with failing, but I couldn't live with not trying. And I thought, you know what? I'm 25. I've got good skills. Um, you know, I got about $70,000 in savings that I had made from you know way back uh, building websites and I got scholarships to do. I got scholarships to Princeton. Um, I was really good about saving my money when I was working for this startup. I probably, you know, lived on just about nothing um, to save as much as I possibly could. And so I started, I hired two engineers um out and paid them out of my own pocket um sort of fifty thousand dollars a year each so i didn't have many months uh to go didn't pay myself anything and um we started working and every day you know my bank account balance would go down and uh i ended up building a prototype with the help of of matt uh snyder and Pornima vijayashanker um and then one day I said, I've got to stop being an engineer and a product person. And I've got to be a business person. I had no idea what that meant. I've trained as, as an engineer. Um, and so I was like, I don't know, networking, sales, something like that. So I just started showing up to all of these VC events in Silicon Valley and I would pitch and I would try to refine my pitch and get that 30 second elevator pitch down. And this is pre iPhone. You don't have, you know, you have cell phones, but like they have text messaging and that's, that's about it. So I actually kept a laptop in the trunk of my car um, running a server, running the software and literally after 50 no's um, and a few like come back and see me in a few months. um, Josh Koppelman, I pitched him and he's like, that sounds like a great idea. And I said, really? Everyone else says no one will ever trust a startup with, you know, their bank account, username and password. And, uh, in. I don't even trust my brother with that information. So, um, and they were all like, you should just have people upload transactions. I was like, that's not easy. That's not fun. It should be yeah. automatic. It should just right. do the work for you. So I was very firm in like how the system should work because I wanted it for myself first and foremost. And Josh was like, this is a good idea. I whipped out my laptop and like in the parking lot, I showed him <laughs> a demo on a laptop running, uh, y- y- you know, a uh, I think it was a Tomcat server, if you remember if anybody in the Java world rumors like Tomcat servers. Um, and he was like, this looks pretty good. Send me, you know, any deck that you have. And like 10 days later he's like, here's $350,000. And that helped me um, raise. I got once somebody says yes, other people who are on the fence will follow. Uh, it's just that nobody wants to take that first leap into the absolute unknown with somebody who has zero track record. But I'd made it pretty far. Like it wasn't slideware. I had a prototype. It was pretty good. It had some cool concepts in it. Uh, raised a $750,000 round, built the team up to eight or 10 people, raised a $4 million Series A. This is back when, you know, uh, there wasn't a big number. pre seed or seed. Yeah, it was right. a, it was a good number from Shasta Ventures. Um, Todd Francis and Rob Connie Bear uh, over there, still friends with, with that team and highly respect uh, both them as, as uh, venture capitalists. Um, and then we launched. We launched uh, at TechCrunch 50 um, in 2007. It was September 2nd. Um, and it was, I consider, the most important six minutes of my professional career. So most people at this time would use PowerPoint presentations um, in the big screen. And what I did is I did a live demo of um, Mint, like Mm -hmm. actual software. I typed my actual bank account, usernames and passwords for by Capital One and ING. And it was pulling my transactions in real time. Nobody had ever done like a live demo. In fact, I mistyped my password and freaked out. And only got like, you know, one out of the three accounts in. But it pulled enough in and categorized it correctly. It looked beautiful, and people were were wowed because it was not fake. It was not vaporware. It was dead real. Um, and then the other thing that we did at the conference was we hacked it a little. We noticed that they booked out TechCrunch Fifty. Was the the first TechCrunch event. Um, They booked out the two big rooms at uh, this conference center, but they didn't book out a little room that was on the stairway between the two. And so we rented it for like $600, like really cheap. Um, We put our whole team in there with mint branded um, t-shirts. This we had, um, big monitors set up demoing the software. We had our whole press team. We had like friends who weren't even associated with the company wearing mint t-shirts so we looked bigger than we were. We were serving free mint mojitos, so free alcohol helps. Um, And so instead of just having the six minutes on stage, we had hundreds of people walk through there. And so there was a judge's vote and an audience vote. I think we got first place in both. Um, But you know, who knows how it would have gone without the hacking the system, as it were, for the audience and we won and we got 50,000 signups in the first day, it crashed our servers. It literally crashed wow. our servers. Our MySQL database, we were running MySQL as our production database, like had a configuration setting where it was only using 256 megabytes of memory or something like that. And it was just slowing to a crawl. It wasn't the greatest first day, but it was also the greatest first day. Yeah, um, loved it. And we sold it two years to the day after that, we announced it at um, the third TechCrunch event we had three million users. We were on, if I recall, um, maybe a ten or eleven million dollar run rate in terms of revenue. You know, we went from nothing to that in two years flat. Uh, during the Great Recession, we, you know, were quadrupling when all the other people were going out of the business. It was. Um, it was a wild ride. And then I continued to do that at Intuit for another three years or a year and a half. And then I became, um, head of product innovation across all of Intuit. Probably made them more money off of the revisions I did to QuickBooks mm-hmm. than um, what they paid for Mint.
0: Well, I, I remember the story, you know, very well, just, you know, living through that era. And there was three things that I took away, and I'm sure there's many more innovations that you could speak to, but, you know, one was connecting all the financial institution data together, which that didn't exist. And then like automatically populating what that charge was, you know, dining and restaurant charge, right? So segmenting and categorizing the design, it was like design first type of product it was beautiful. It, there was no well-designed products then for consumers. And it was free for the consumer, too. So the business model was unique, too. So how did you come up? Like, How did you connect the banks? How did you think about the design? And then how did you think about the business model?
1: Great questions, because those all were unique at the time. So um, one led to another. So the first uh, piece of background is I've been a Quicken or a Microsoft Money user since I was like 16, and running my own businesses and I was sort of commingling my personal and my business finances and every weekend or every two weeks I would like download my bank transactions and have to manually categorize everything And it would take mm-hmm. me an hour or two and I'd be like oh why doesn't it know that Amazon is books and DVDs which is all they sold at the time um, mm-hmm. you know and why doesn't it know that Safeway is groceries and and whatnot and so I was like you know what what if I took the yellow pages, which is already categorized and looked up all of these um, transactions in the yellow pages. Um, And the transactions were difficult because often there were missing spaces. They were abbreviated. There were uh, a bunch of garbage characters in there. And I came up with ways to like figure out what your zip code was and search only within a certain radius. And so I actually built my own sort of custom search engine um, that was really quick. And it turns out that I could categorize like 90, 95% of transactions without any effort. And so I was like, this is cool. It takes away my pain point, which is hours of uh, manually categorizing. And then I was like, you know, this is really interesting. If I can figure out exactly what categories people are spending on, then you can set up automatic budgets and you can say, Oh, I want, I want to spend $200 a month, you know, dining out and send me an email alert. If, uh, if I exceed that budget. Um, And then I was like, you know, and I I kind of, I'm into like credit card miles and optimization. Like my chase card pays me 5% on groceries and gas. And my Amex card gives me 3% on travel and uh, et cetera. I wonder if I can like recommend different, you know, credit cards to optimize and sort of gain the system and get as many miles and points and cash back as possible. And I, I was like, well, actually I can take a look at bank accounts and I can see how uh, your interest charges, like how many times it says interest deposited. And I can look at your average balance and I can figure out what your interest rate is, or I can just scrape it. And um, I can, from that I can tell you, wow, you're, you're earning a terrible interest rate. You should switch to this other bank. So I was like, wow. So just from category- categorizing all your transactions and seeing all your transactions, I can make this free when my competitor is 60 or $80 Um, and I can upsell you, you know, uh, credit cards, bank accounts, loan consolidation, but with a guarantee that they're not just blanket advertisements that because I know you and I know your finances, well, I'm not going to show you a quote ad. We call them suggestions because that's really much more what they were. I'm not going to show you one of these suggestions unless I know it makes you $500 a year more. So that's a pretty cool guarantee. You, the only quote ads you're going to see make you money. No I was never thought of that before. And I was like, great. So it can be free. It can categorize things. And now I need to solve this. How do I connect up to 12,000 banks of brokerages and loans? There was a company that had sort of solved this before called Yodely. Um, and they did account aggregation services, mostly for brokerages so that um, they could aggregate multiple accounts uh, together for uh, sort of a single view. So we initially used them. Then we built our own system. Um, then we were using our own system plus Intuit system after the acquisition. And then the company called Plaid came along and was like, "We can do this, you know, really well." And they've they've done phenomenally. Um, but we effectively had to build a version of Plaid um, in order to to get this done. So just a huge number of challenges along the way. But if you're going to start a business that's worth hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, you're going to have to solve hard problems that no one else really wants to solve, that you don't want to solve. Account aggregation was an absolute nightmare. Banks used to block us all of the time. Um, you know, our IP addresses, we had like banks of cable modems to go from different IP addresses to get around that. Um, we had a nuclear option, which was if a bank blocked us effectively, we would tell our, our, our users, um, hey, we think your data is, is yours. Please tell Capital One, ING, whatever it might be, that you want ownership of your data. Here's their phone number. Just bombard (laughs) them with customer service requests. And like that was really effective within sort of 24 hours. Like we would get a phone call and just be like, okay, what's your security protocol? Can we trust you? And we had really good security as well. David Michaels, who was our VP of engineering, came from PGP, pretty good privacy, the encryption company. And then our, um, I was friends with all these cryptographers, um, Paul Kocher, who designed SSL version two, uh, Carter and, um Josh Jaffe, who worked at cryptography research and they designed our uh, crypto system. And we, this was before AWS, we had our own um, data center. We literally had a system where in order to change the encryption keys, Um, I had like a little USB stick that I'd have in my pocket, my VP of engineering. It it took a quorum. It took at like at least two out of the four to be there. So it was like, we likened it to the nuclear keys that are like more than an arm's length apart. We both had to be there and turn the key at the same time in order to like you know, uh, get through the system. We had this like funny oh, specialized hardware for rate limiting so that if anybody somehow managed to get past everything, if they started like pulling our accounts, they could only do it at a very, very slow speed where we would detect them and it wouldn't be everybody, you know, in the catastrophic case. We were thinking through all these scenarios. Uh, we were never hacked. Um, we never lost any data to my knowledge That that is true uh, to this day, you know, even 15 years later. Um, because trust was so paramount. And that's where that good design fits in as well. Like trust is a psychological response. Like if you're walking down a dark alley uh, and you see somebody who's well-dressed and well-groomed, you're not going to be as frightened as, <laughs> as certain other um, you know, people that you might uh, run into and body language matters. And so we wanted our site and our domain and our name, everything that we did to convey that this is a site that takes uh, you, your data, uh, uh, your security very, very seriously. You can trust us, you can trust me as a CEO. And I did a lot of press to uh, reinforce this and it was well-deserved. We we didn't um, violate that trust for our, our, our users.
0: You did scale it and you talked about the TechCrunch launch. So did it just start to just word of mouth, the press you were doing, like where did that acquisition come from?
1: Yeah. So uh, the most successful acquisition at the time was two things. Um, one is we had, uh, the, the mint life blog. So a personal finance blog, which at, at one time was, I think the fourth most popular financial site or destination online after like, uh, CNN Money, um, Kiplinger's, Forbes, Fortune, like the, the names that you've absolutely heard of in the financial space were, were the only ones who were uh, ahead of us. Um, we used a lot of infographics, which are today super commonplace, but like we made everything fun and understandable and cartoony. And um, I, it sounds crazy, but nobody was doing that. Nobody did that. And we were really, really successful uh, with social media. We Anytime we would have um, press, which was our uh, probably our number one strategy, I did 550 press interviews in a two-year period. I mean, that's like two a a workday, like a lot. Yeah. I mean, one time I was in New York in a radio station and I did the morning radio show um, and I started in Canada because we had just launched Canada. So it was Atlantic time. So I'm starting at like 3.30, 4 a.m., you know, hitting mm-hmm. Halifax or something, and, you know, moving over to Montreal and Miami, New York, uh, then over to the central time and all the way. And I did that for like four or five hours straight. I did, I kid you not, like 35 interviews in a single day. It was exhausting, uh, but really racks up the <laughs> racks up the numbers. I was a regular on Fox Business News and CNBC and, mm-hmm. um, and whatnot. Press uh, really legitimizes the, the company. Mint is not naturally a viral product. Um, it's not super social. You don't really share your finances or your balances with maybe anybody except for your spouse or your family, your financial advisor. Um, so we had to use other mechanisms and press was a, a big one. And then whenever a press article came out, New York Times article comes out, we had a lot of Twitter followers, we'd put something on our blog, we'd post things on Facebook, and we had like this little algorithm where article comes out, four hours later, we post it on Twitter, we wait for, um, you know, it to build and start to trend, then we put it on Facebook, and then, you know, it sort of gets this virtuous cycle. Um, And then, you know, New York Times or... Wired or whatever the journalist is notices that they're getting a lot of page views on this topic and wants to write about us more. I was constantly available to press. I would just take calls um, anytime, day or night. I would try to be their go-to person. And then I was super persistent about it. I remember, I think it was Fortune. I did six interviews over uh, 18 months with zero articles. And then all of a sudden um you know we had credibility or we reached a size or we reached enough buzz within the organization that they did you know three big articles on us in just a couple of months time Got it. so you never yeah. know you just have to keep yeah. putting the work in
0: yeah feel the credibility with the press too yeah well let's uh talk about what you're up to now so vital what is vital and how did the idea come to fruition there
1: so um, Vital is uh, software for healthcare patient experience. So anytime you go to the hospital, either to the emergency room or if you're staying overnight for inpatient, we are a guide to what's going to happen, what's going on behind the scenes, how long you're going to wait, how to interpret your lab results, and most importantly, what to do next. Um, So started Vital five years ago with uh, Dr. Justin Schrager, who is an emergency room physician. Um, He's also my brother-in-law. So I was literally at home with him for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and he was sort of not hanging out with family. And I was like, what are you up to? And he's like, I'm finishing my doctor's notes. And I saw the software he was using. Um, It was Windows-based desktop, it looked like it was like Windows 98 software, you know, the kind with like the tree style menus and it's all gray and there's a jillion buttons. And I was like, what the heck is this? And he's like, this is brand new and we pay like a hundred million dollars a year for it. I was like, this is an opportunity. This is definitely an opportunity. This is way too complex. And you know, my personal mission in life, like me personally, is effectively to take complicated industries that are full of uh, anxiety and um, worry and put a layer of design, clarity, and simplicity, actionability on them. Because that's sort of the clarity that I value in my own head. And so it's just like, hey, my job is to take kind of crappy, complex stuff healthcare, finance, you know, maybe one day it'll be government or education, things that nobody wants to deal with because they're just a mess. Um, and I'm going to make it sexy and pretty and usable and, you know, as fun as that stuff can be. And that's literally my mission in life. Um, and, you know, having that, that clarity around what your own personal mission in life is, I think is really important. Vital absolutely plays into to this. It's such a, a needed space. When somebody goes into the emergency room today, you might wait 20 minutes or two hours or five hours, you know, during the Omicron spike. I saw wait times that were atrocious, even higher than that. You have no idea what's going on next. You have no idea what to expect. This is one of the worst nights of your life. Even Mm -hmm. after you've seen a doctor and they're running tests on you, you know, there's two or three hours where you're like, what the heck is going on? what does bun creatinine and, and why is it elevated? Like it's this obscure other language and effectively what vital does is we interpret that and say, they're using, we're, we're doing this test to detect if you're dehydrated. And now that you're being discharged, you need to follow up with this doctor within this time frame. and you need to do pick up these medications. And by uh, the way, a little mint like aspect in there, this isn't out yet, but we're actually gonna show you the lowest price for medications and um, whether there are any you know, coupons or discounts available. And you can actually get medications for like between 80 and 90% off um, and prices that are often even lower than what uh, using your own insurance will give you if you know how to do it correctly. Um, so make the whole process understandable because otherwise people get treated, they get released, they don't know what to do. They The instructions, the people, hospitals give you like, like a 15 page printout, like a dot matrix style printout in 2022. And you're like, what do I do with this wad of paper? I don't know. I'm tired and confused. And I've been in the emergency room all night. It's not well laid out. Um, and so we tell you exactly what to do. And as a result, it's really good for hospitals. Patients come back, they get the treatment they need. Don't bounce back into the the hospital. So it reduces your readmission rates. That's financially good for the hospitals. They get penalized um, for that by the government. Um, It also means that they get the follow-up business in terms of uh, people going to more of their their specialists and and whatnot. So it's it's a great patient experience. We have extremely high usage. We have between 50 and 70% of all patients in the emergency room using the software. Like at Mint, if I'd look at how many new people came to the website versus how many people signed up and Mint was great and we were optimized the hell out of the, the sign up. It was maybe 30, 35%. We have a funnel that's like 50 to 70% of anybody who could use us, uses us. Um, it helps that it's sort of a captive audience, but it also helps that we're just delivering exactly what you wanna know. How long am I gonna be in this waiting room? Why am I doing this? What can I do to make it faster? And we we're doing that for the inpatient product as well. What's going to happen today? When am I going to see the doctor? When should I have my family come in to help me visit? How do I get out of the hospital faster? What's actually wrong with me? How do I interpret these tests that have words and terms that I've never heard of before? Um, you know, to put your health back into the patient control. And then on the physician side, you know, doctors and nurses get asked to do all sorts of. Kind of crappy work and you see a mass exodus of nurses in particular and they have to like fetch water do food orders you know be everything to a patient and it's i won't say it's beneath them but it's not operating at the what we call the top of their license or the top of their training doing the things that are actually really using their brain and their empathy and, and all the things that they're trained to do and so we have a way to for the patient to just say I need a blanket i need uh, volunteer services i want to talk to somebody about advanced directive i need a visit from a chaplain we added dog visits at one hospital which are super popular and they just push buttons and then a dog comes to visit them and they're happier or they push a button and a hot pack or a cold pack or whatever to help with their pain um, just shows up and it gets routed to the right uh, department and the nurses don't have to deal with it and they save Oh God, we did a calculation that we're saving something like a thousand hours of nurse time um, in our inpatient setting and 500 to thousand in our emergency department setting. Like that's like a whole other nurse that you get just as part of doing the software. So the key for vital has been um, don't make doctors and nurses do anything more. Take all the information that's already happening in your electronic medical records and interpret it in a way that humans can understand and talk to the doc talk to the patient the same way that a nurse or a doctor would, if you had infinite nurses and doctors. The one thing that I'm I'm super happy, uh, Dr. Schrager, our co-founder and chief medical officer, as my brother-in-law, having a doctor in the family is amazing. I can just call him and say, what's this? Should I be concerned? And he'll just like two minutes, walk me through it. I want to give everybody in the world, the experience of having like a doctor or a nurse in their family, you know, at all times, guiding them through chronic issues, guiding them through acute care issues, hospitalization, urgent care, um, emergency. And that's really the goal of vital.
0: Makes a world of sense. (laughs) It's, it's two things. One, the uh, understanding of what's happening, why are they doing these tests? So the just understanding of what's happening and just kind of helping you through whatever you're dealing with, but also the communication element of knowing the length of time you need to wait. Cause if you just know it, you can deal with it, but you were just sitting there not knowing you're just like, you're, you're pacing, you know, the, whoever's visiting you is pacing the halls looking for the nurse or looking for the doctor. As they like, what's next. So communication is so key. Um, so you, you raised 15 million, uh, series a last September, um, so, where's the company at now in terms of you know customers, you know size of the company, or whatever you want to share?
1: Yeah, wow, we are now in over a hundred hospitals, which is wow. amazing. Um, so, at, at this point, uh, in terms of like number of visits that I see, I see I think a million and a half to two million visits uh, a year mm-hmm. um, is what I have visibility into. Wow, that's there's 140 million emergency visits every year. So like we're now at like, you know, like a couple percent or like whole number percentages. And what's even more amazing is because this was a hard area because it requires artificial intelligence to predict wait times accurately. You don't want to do retrospective wait times. You don't want to do rolling averages because those lag. You need to predict whether the patient is going to be admitted or not. You need to predict what. Educational videos to show them using natural language processing. There's a lot of algorithms in this to make it simple. Same as in Mint. There's a lot of hard problems to solve that you know. Hopefully, you don't see. You just get the benefit of. Um, so w- we're using all of this data, these millions and millions of, of visits to to train uh, that whole system. Um, and I'm I'm really really proud of where the team has has, has got. We've had uh, about three quarters of a million patients or more use the system to date and our run rate is even faster. We're accelerating 150,000 uh, family members use the system because we've got sharing. Um, so we'll be at millions and millions of patients, I think, you know, in the next year, we're in 20, 25 health systems. So if you think about it, a lot of health systems will experiment. they will just be like, ah. Oh, we have 20 hospitals. We have 50 hospitals. Let's get this up and running at one, two, three hospitals um, to just see how it goes. And so we're in that stage with a bunch of people. And then we've, we're past that stage with a few of our our first clients, where we're either in the entire health system or uh, one of our biggest clients. We're in like 25 or 30 of their hospitals. We're in 56 of a you know another one um, and. So these one and two hospitals, a lot of them are in big systems where two or three years from now, there'll be 40, 50, 100 hospitals apiece because we've planted the flag. It's really interesting. I've never really done enterprise sales before just to see how that works. But it's like we're planting a lot of flags. We've just signed up partners for international operations in Canada, Australia um, and uh, the Middle East. Um, so we'll be expanding internationally. We built our product to be internationalized from day one. It's multilingual. So it's always been in English, Spanish. We've translated it to Armenian of all languages, um, uh, Tagalog, Vietnamese, a bunch of others. Um, and then, um, the Arabic translations are coming soon. Those are, those are tricky because it's, it's a right to left language and you actually have to mirror the, um. menus as well Um, but that's in the plans for later this year as well as just a lot of inpatient expansion so our product lines themselves are expanding Um, emergency inpatient hospital um, and then we're working on things like sepsis alerts hospital acquired infections things that literally will save people's lives through our artificial intelligence and the preliminary results on sepsis are that it's literally 400 percent better than you know any any leading competitor effectively, because we're using deep learning, not just naive machine learning, um, and that it's as accurate as a doctor manually going through, except that it's working 24/7 all the time looking for um, septic shock, which is uh, you know. Uh, within your blood and can cause systemic uh, failure. And so just amazing things that will not just improve patient experience, but literally improve um, outcomes and and hopefully
0: save lives. So so what have been those biggest lessons learned? You talked about, Hey, wow, it's been interesting to watch more of that enterprise software sale. So you're building a product in healthcare, which uh, there's a gazillion opportunities for entrepreneurs to build and improve the healthcare world that we're living in. So what advice would you have on, you know, that selling to a health system? Because before you were, you know, the consumers were signing up for free and you were making money through the business model we talked about with Mint. So the difference is there and how to overcome them.
1: Uh, With a health system, you can't have a minimum viable product. It has to be, you know, nearly fully baked um, and provide immediate value it has to provide value for the clinicians as well as you know the hospital from an economic standpoint hospitals are a funny thing i often like to say i've got 19 yeses am i going to get a 20th no or a 20th i'm not sure they are very consensus driven organizations they're you know can be big and bureaucratic it's very easy for us our product is works so well that the emergency directors the charge nurses, all of them, you know, just sort of say yes. And then it'll be something obscure, like, oh, we don't have the IT resources to do the 10 hours to connect the VPN up. And I'm like, I can give you a script, like, I could do it for you. Just, and they're like, ah, we got a six month queue of password resets and like upgrades to do And you're like, ah. You know, you have no idea what's gonna happen in these large organizations to to derail you. Um, And so covering all of the things, even if they seem obscure and asking questions about them early has been key. Um, Nobody wants to take any risk in healthcare. So, you know, we had to not just have a fully baked product, um, sort of day one, we had to have $3 million of cyber liability insurance. Um, security audits by outsiders, you know, before we could even go into our first health system it wasn't even paying us. Um, then all the others were like, ah, let, let us know how it goes with that health system for six months. And then you you get that six months in, you do the case studies, you prove the return on investment, and then it opens the, the gate. But it's quite sequential. Whereas with the consumer world, I was just so used to fast iteration. You know, somebody likes you, somebody that doesn't so be it. there'll be another, you know, thousand consumers who visit your website in the next, um, you know, a few days, if you've built your marketing correctly. And it's sort of like, you get a new chance here. It's like relationships that you build over months and years. And then once you have that relationship, it's, it's a very beautiful thing. Like I personally know dozens of doctors and nurses and I can call them up and just be like, Hey, would this help you, you know, out? I, I saw that you did this and this. And I was thinking, you know, I was just, I was literally meditating on, on it um, and nobody's ever come up with this idea before. So I don't know if it's crazy. And they'll tell me um, immediately. And it's uh, it's a beautiful relationship where they'll request things. They'll ask us to solve uh, their problems. So it's a very deep relationship, but it is a relationship and it's weird because I wasn't used to that in the consumer world. You know, you're, you almost are driven more by metrics and funnels and A-B testing and, you know, you treat your consumers kind of abstractly and here it's very, very much humans. Every one of them um, is potentially using your software for eight, 10, 12 hours a day in stressful situations and it just has to work. And so you have to deeply respect that um, and not not put out anything that's half-baked.
0: One of the hardest things about building a company is getting the team right. So hiring is hard. Recruiting the employees to build that initial product is really, really challenging. So what advice would you have on building that initial foundation team?
1: You know, um, I'm a technical CEO. Uh, I have those degrees in electrical engineering, computer science, computer engineering. I can program and often do program the core algorithms for Mint and for Vital in the beginning. But one of the most important things that I've learned is to very quickly hire a technical leader. For Mint, it was David Michaels, our VP of engineering, um, who is employee number uh, three. And um, the first person that I worked with is uh, T. Warren at Idle, who is our CTO now. Um, and even though I'm capable of being a CTO or VP of engineering, um, having that technical leader who takes care of the details has been the most important thing for me, even as a technical person, because I have to do the business side um, as well. You need to get domain experts if you're in healthcare. I see a lot of you know companies who sell software and don't really understand what doctors and nurses do who don't spend enough time in hospitals. I will do late night shifts in an emergency room if I can. I love uh you know being in the hospital it's one of those places that's like you know the lighting is never good and it's kind of a weird situation and you're always afraid you're going to catch some deadly disease particularly in the last two years um but there's no substitute for just being on the ground and talking to people and uh, observing and, and feeling um so uh having those people on your team and then making sure that everybody in your product organization or certain parts of your engineering organization, like visit a hospital, spend some time in emergency room, talk to patients, talk to, to nurses is, uh, is really important. All
0: right. Three apps you can't live without.
1: Three apps that I can't live without. Oh, you know, if this is a funny thing. Like I'm a tech CEO who, um, I don't think that I'm the most like, I, I am tech savvy, like very tech savvy. I can program anything and figure anything out. But I, I feel like I'm not necessarily the early adopter where I'm like, oh, these are the three apps that you've never heard of that are gonna change right. your life. Like my three apps are absolutely, you know, boring. Like, um, you know, okay, Jira. I love Jira as as an application, um, which most people don't. Um, and, you know, boring stuff like uh, Gmail and Google maps and, and whatnot. Figma um, is probably my, uh, my favorite for for design and, mm-hmm. um, and prototyping. I use that uh, all the time. And then um, mode for analytics. You know, you still have to be very, very data-driven. We have a jillion dashboards. We test every feature that we put out there, see if it makes expectations and figure out how to tweak it. Um, so those are the, those are the tools that I use as a product person. Figma for design mode for figuring out if it's uh, working in graphing and analytics and funnel optimization.
0: How about a, any good uh, podcast or book recommendations? Um,
1: yeah. So for podcasts, for healthcare, uh, relentlessly seeking health value is my, uh, my favorite. Um, and it's all about cutting waste and having value-based healthcare, which I firmly believe in. Uh,
0: what do you do, do for fun outside of work?
1: Oh, um, well, I do a lot of, uh, hiking and running. Um, I'm currently on a four and a half year run streak, which means that I haven't missed a single day, even when I've had COVID or the flu or, um, you know, been on a boat and I run laps up and down, you know, uh, 30 feet at a time back and forth. Uh, so I do a lot of running, a lot of hiking. I spend a lot of time, uh, if I can on, on, on a boat. Um, so scuba diving, I like to dive for scallops and lobsters and that sort of thing. Um, in New Zealand, it's it's just a a beautiful,
0: pristine, um, outdoor space. That's amazing. Very jealous. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background story. Uh, all the great insights of, uh, of how you built mint.com and obviously the the great work you're doing vital. Thanks for having me, Keith.